0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for
1: listening. So, Before I invite Pastor Andrew to come and share with us God's Word, allow me to read the passage. You'll be looking at Zechariah 3 and 4 this morning. I'll give you some time to click to a Bible passage or to take out your notebook. Uh, The rest of you, you three, to refer to the production slide up at the front or up on the screen. Okay, Zechariah 3. Then if you show me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side, who accusing. him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuked you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuked you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off! his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put five garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, for the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord Give this charge, Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says: If you will walk in obedience to Me and keep My requirements, then you will govern My house and are charge of My courts, and I'll give you a place among those standing here. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you a man man symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I'll grave an inscription on it. it says the Lord Almighty. And I will move the scene of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up. Like someone awakened from sleep, he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it. With seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side, right of the bowl, and the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, "What are these, my lord?" He answered, "Do you not know what these are?" "No, my lord," I replied. So he said to me, "This is the word of the Lord to the riverbowl." Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Jeroboam, you become level ground. Then you will bring out the capstone, Who shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Jeroboam have laid the foundation of this temple, His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares, despite the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hands of Zerubbabel? Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive oils on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I ask him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I say. So he said, these are the two who who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of God.
0: Hey, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be back physically here and to see you across from me. Uh, I'm really happy and I hope you're happy to be back at church too. So let's go to God in prayer now and uh, commit our time before him as we listen to his word. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to give thanks for you that we are able to meet in this way. And we pray most of all that you speak clearly to us through your word. That we will meet you in the Bible today that you encourage and strengthen our faith. Pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many years ago, uh, I was studying in Australia, and uh, in my first year at university, I remember a group of us had this wonderful idea of going skiing. So, uh, there was uh, some Asian friends of mine, plus some Australian. So, my Australian friend had this great idea. We'll buy this really, really old car for like a couple of thousand dollars. It's so cheap. It's amazing, right? So, anyway, we brought this car up and we went to the ski fields and we rented this really cheap flat, which was like miles away from the ski fields. And so we would drive up to the ski fields to go skiing. And then one day, we went skiing and disaster. We realized that my friend, my forgetful friend, locked the keys in the car. And so we were like stuck. Couldn't get into the car, it was cold. It was, uh, the day was running down, people were already leaving, and we we're like, what are we going to do now? Right? I mean, we don't want to break the window, and you know what's going to happen. And then finally, suddenly, uh, this woman out of the blue in this big SUV came up to us and said, Are you guys all right? Do you need some help? And we're like, Yeah, yeah, we do. And apparently, she was a ski instructor at uh, the ski resort, and she was going to town, and she could give us a list of to town, and then we could catch a bus to the flat, and then pick up a spare key and come back again. And so that was really wonderful because, you know, it's like we were really stuck. It was a helpless, hopeless situation. But this woman just turned up out of the blue and she helped us. And it was, wow, you know, we managed to get the car running again and we got home. Now, as we come to today's passage, the people of, uh, of God in 520 BC were, were somewhat in that situation. Uh, they were in a helpless situation. They had social problems, economic problems, political problems, even religious problems. And many of them seemed unsolvable. And so last week, as we, and the week before, as we were going through the passage, um, we saw that uh, God had told His people, return to me and I will return to you. And what we see now is a series of eight visions, of which we have gone through three, right, of how the return of God to His people, as they return to Him in repentance, Actually, brings all these great blessings and benefits. So, this word here, uh, repentance, return to me, is the idea of God's people repenting and returning to God. And now the people have God returning to them. And these visions are now these great blessings which accrue as God comes back to his people. And so, what do we see here in these visions? Now, these visions are vivid, memorable, and they're wonderful, and, they're, and they fill me with great excitement. And I hope that as you Get it in your brain, you will be filled with excitement too because these visions are powerful visions which are not just abstract visions, but they relate to us personally. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, the first vision that Zechariah is shown by God is Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side accusing him. And so what we see here is a court scene. This is not the high court of Singapore. This is the heavenly courts. And we have God as the judge, right? He's uh, represented by the angel. And then we have the accuser, who is the devil, right? He is making accusations against the defendant, which is Joshua, the high priest. Now, what we now see is something quite stunning and strange, right? It's a bit surprising. Because God, as the judge, rebukes the prosecutor and Rebukes him not just once but twice and tells him to keep quiet and to shut up and not say a word. Don't you find that strange? I mean, hopefully, none of us have been to court before to be accused by the prosecutor, but we've all watched movies. You know, we all have a sense of uh, what's happening here. And it's very, very, very exceptional for the judge to actually tell the prosecutor to keep quiet and to shut up and to rebuke the prosecutor. But that's what we see here. God tells the devil, the Satan, to keep quiet. Now, why? Why is this happening? Right? Why does the judge tell the devil to keep quiet? And now we're given a second picture. It's a series of running pictures here in this vision. We're given a vision of a, a, a powerful bonfire. And there is a stick which is on fire. And Joshua, as compared to the stick, says, it's not this man, right? Joshua, the high priest, a burning stick snatched from the fire. And so this stick is saved from burning up. Now, that's a really vivid picture if you can think of it, isn't it? Because not only is the stick in the bonfire, it is already on fire and it's like burning up already and God like, reaches in and snatches the stick to save it. Now, how is this happening? Obviously, this burning stick and the court scene are related and it shows how Joshua, the high priest, is saved from judgment. He is snatched out of judgment. The fire represents judgment, right? It could even represent hell. Now, how is this happening? Because it seems a bit arbitrary. seems very unfair that God, the judge, would just tell the prosecutor to shut up and to declare that Joshua can be set free, isn't it? So how is this happening? How are we to understand what we are reading here? We're then given another picture in this vision. So, what does Joshua see? Now, Joshua, sorry, what does Zechariah see? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said, The angel said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments or fine garments or pure garments on you. And so what we see here is a vivid picture. So this is how Joshua the high priest is usually dressed. Right? You know, he's dressed in this fine, respectable clothes, a bit like me wearing my tie and my nice shirt, you know, my usual Sunday church uh, attire. But how do we see Joshua in this picture? He is dressed in filthy garments. Now, these filthy garments is translated to us, communicated to us in very polite language. It's too gentle. Uh, The word here for filthy garments or filthy clothes is the word for excrement or poo or da you know? And so, obviously, uh, we don't have a visual aid in the second service because we don't have young kids, but in the first service, we had lots of kids. Oh, actually, yes, we have Thaddeus, right? So, you know, if you hang around Tadeus for uh, not too long, right? You can f- smell this smell animating from him. And where is it coming from? It's coming from his diapers, right? And what's in his diapers? It's poo. Okay. Now imagine you take Tadeus's diaper, a few of them, and you kinda like turn them inside out and, and wear them. Well, that's what that's what Joshua is dressed in. He's dressed in clothes of poo. And this pool really represents sin. It's like, it's repulsive, it's offensive, it's smelly, and that is what God sees when he sees Joshua the high priest. He didn't see a righteous man, a good man. He sees a man covered with repulsive, offensive sin like poo. And that's why it's shocking, isn't it? Because the judge tells the prosecutor to shut up, but the prosecutor has a slam-dunk case. The whole court can see that Joshua is dressed with these filthy, offensive, sinful clothes. But then what does God do? He takes away the sin. The angel takes away his filthy clothes and gives him rich garments or white garments or fine clothes. Linen, And what a wonderful image it is because in a very visual, very powerful, vivid way, it's saying that his dirty, offensive, repulsive sin is stripped away from him and he's given these fine clothes and now he's clean before God. But it says there that uh, Joshua is not just given these fine linen white clothes. He's also given a turban. Now, when we think of turban in our context, in our time, we think of the Indians, right? the Sikhs, they wear turbans. But in the, the ancient world, in the, for God's people, the high priest wears a turban. Okay? You can see he wears a turban. The king wears a crown, high priest wears a turban. And here we see Joshua is given a clean turban. And so, in a series of these pictures, it's actually saying that, Joshua is now made clean. He's not just made clean for himself. He is now given a clean turban so that he is able to serve the people as a priest. And this will be wonderful news to God's people in 520 BC because not only is the temple being rebuilt, it means that the priest's office, the office of the priest, the sacrificial system, the priest acting as their intermediary is now operational and they can now meet God. Now, if we were just to come today, this morning, to read about Joshua and what happened to Joshua, it would be interesting, but ultimately irrelevant to us, meaningless to us. But what comes next shows us that what we see here for Joshua has great significance for us. Because in verse 8, what does it say? It says, Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before me. You are men... Symbolic of things to come. That means what happened to Joshua is not just relevant to Joshua, but is relevant for the future for us. And so, what is it pointing forward to? It says, "I'm going to send my servant, the branch, Mr. Branch." Okay. So there are these two key words: my servant and the branch, and it's pointing forward to this person who is called the servant or titled the servant and referred to as the branch. Now we know from other passages in the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that my servant, my servant, keeps referring to his servant, King David. And the branch speaks of one who will come from the line of David and he will be the one who will fulfill the promise of God that the house of David will always be the king or the Messiah over his people. So what we see here is that is that what happens to Joshua is pointing forward, the symbolic of things to come, that this servant of the Davidic line, this one who is the the branch of the family of David, he will come. But he doesn't come as the king. What does he come to do instead? It says that this person, the servant, the branch, he will come to remove the sins of this land in a single day. now, Isn't that amazing? 520 BC, 500 years ago, it speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, King of the line of David, who will come and indeed at the cross removes the sin of the land, not of Joshua, but of the whole land in a single day. And that's why when Jesus is at the cross, when he dies at the cross, his very last breath he pronounces, it is finished. It is finished. And here is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 3. At that moment in a single day, Jesus, the servant, the branch, removes the sin of the land at the last moment on the cross in a single day. Now, I think that this is such a wonderful, vivid picture for us, right? Because it tells us... Sorry, this is a slide that I was going to put up for you. Because it tells us that actually not only does God know what's going to happen, but there's this wonderful act that he's going to do for us. And so what happened for Joshua the high priest? It's not just relevant for Joshua the high priest. It is relevant for us as well. All of us, in a sense, are accused by Satan. And we stand in the dock. Before God, the judge. And we are all guilty, guilty, guilty before God. And Satan is there. He has every incentive to pronounce us guilty. But God stops the voice of Satan. He snatches us all from the fire of judgment. He gives us the clean, pure, fine linen. And he removes from us the filthy excrement-covered, clothes of sin that we wear. You see, imagine right now if someone were to walk through our the green doors into our hall and they're covered with excrement and poo smelling like 100 times worse than today's on this bad day. We will be immediately repulsed and offended, right? We want to sit far, far away. well, that's exactly what our sin is before God. Imagine if you were going to meet the president in the Astana, would you, how would you turn up? Would you turn up in pool covered clothes, repulsive and offensive? You wouldn't, right? But if you were to meet God, the God, the creator, the maker of this world, we can't just covet, come, come before him in our pool covered clothes of sin. But God, in his own grace and initiative, has removed these offensive, repulsive clothes we wear and given us these fine clothes. And how has he done it? Because when Jesus dies on the cross, on that one day, he gives us the righteous clothes. We no longer wear the clothes we deserve, but God gives us the righteous white clothes of Jesus. And he does it because Jesus takes our sins on his cross and gives us his righteousness. Now, if that's a very positive picture, then the next picture is also a very, very encouraging and positive picture for all of us. Now, this other picture is different in a way from the picture of chapter three, because you know, the vision in chapter three is actually a series of pictures, right? Uh, The court scene, the fire scene, and then the the white cloth scene, and then the turban scene. But here in this uh, vision, it's actually one complex picture which keeps being built upon. So what does he see this time, Zechariah? He sees a solid gold lamp stamp, a bowl at the top, seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights, and there's an olive tree, one to the right of the bowl and one to its left. And in fact, it uh, can be a bit confusing. So let me give you a picture. And this is, I think, a fair representation of what Zechariah describes in his vision. So there we have two olive trees, and out of these olive trees, there are channels in a way like a, you know, or maybe I can't use this illustration because you're not very familiar, you don't travel anymore, but if you go to the rubber plantation in Blazer, you know, you see those channels, right, which the rubber feeds out of. You all know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you are nodding your heads. Okay, so imagine these olive trees and then these channels which is are feeding olive oil into this bowl. And out of this bowl come seven more channels, which then feed the individual flames. Okay, so this is the, 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 the picture. And we're given kind of like a few details of what each of the elements of this picture mean. Okay, so the olive trees, the two of them are people anointed by God to do various things. So they could be Zerubbabel, the governor, Or Joshua, the high priest. But I think it probably more refers to Zechariah, the prophet, as well as Haggai, the prophet. Because in the book of Revelation, there's a similar vision or similar picture and it refers to the prophets. Now, the lamps, the seven lamps, sorry, not too fast, the seven lamps are said to be the eyes. Now, eyes, what do they mean? Eyes are for watching, right? So I'm, I'm watching you, okay, and you're watching me. So there's a sense in which God is watching His people. He's present with His people. He's He's there, aware of what's happening in the community. And then the lampstand could be the temple itself or the community of the people. So take a snapshot of that. Fix it into your mind because once we have that picture, then, then we're kind of like told how we're supposed to understand it. I mean, why does God give us this picture? Okay, so in verse 6, it says, So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to the Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And this is the key phrase, the key sentence, which drives the whole picture. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so we know that Zerubbabel, whom this word is given to, was tasked with building the temple. And so what God is saying to Zerubbabel is that the fuel or the energy or the power for the temple rebuilding will not come by human might or human power, but it will come by God's spirit. God's spirit. And therefore, we then make sense of this. Okay, that's too early. It then makes sense of this picture that God has given us. Why? Because the fuel, in a sense, for the temple building comes from where? Comes from outside of itself, right? The fuel comes from the olive trees. You know, it's, it's like God is present among them and the word of God comes to them from Zechariah and from Haggai. And so it's not by human right or human power, but God outside of the community and temple who provides the fuel or the energy or the power for the building of the temple. And so if you uh, remember the Olympics, uh, which was happening uh, not too long ago, you know that whenever the Chinese athletes are competing, they always chant, "You 加油,加油,加油, right? Add oil, add oil. And uh, obviously, when you're at the Olympics, it means that you have to add your own oil, right? You swim faster, you run faster, you push more weight, right? But, but here in this vision, it is not uh, the, the people themselves who are adding the fuel, the energy, or the power to build the temple. But it is God from the outside who provides the energy or the power or the oil for the jia yu. And so... Because God is the one who's doing it. It says that the, in verse 7, right? It says that in verse 7, What are you, O mighty mountain? Okay? Before Zerubbabel, you become level ground. Now, the mighty mountain here is not the physical mountain. It's not as if you know, they have to level the mountain. Okay, But the mighty mountain is the problems that they face. You know, like, gotta use your picture imagination here. They face a mountain of problems, social problems, military problems, political problems, their enemies who are hindering them from building the temple. They had resource problems. And so this insurmountable mountain of problems with God adding his fuel become like easy level ground. That's what God is saying. It goes on to say, in verse 10, Who despises a day of small things? And this actually is a companion to what are you mighty mountains. You see, you think about it. They are companion sentences because when you think of it, the days, you know, maybe some of us have bad days, right? It's like, you know, the, the, your mountain, your, your problems seem like a big mountain of problems. They're insurmountable. You can't fix them yourself. And it seems like the achievements that you can achieve are very small and insignificant. So they come together, right? Mountain of problems, small achievements. But God says that because He provides the fuel, He provides the Spirit, His presence, The mighty mountain will become like level ground. Okay? Mighty mountain will become like level ground. Oops. And the day of small things will result in rejoicing and shouts of of, of praise to God. God bless it. God bless it. Now, as we then come to this passage, it also applies to us today because God is still in the temple building business, right? So, in 520 BC, God adds fuel, the spirit, his presence is there in the building and temple, his word is at work in the community as they build the temple. And when the temple is rebuilt, it says the capstone will be put on the last days of the temple building and people will rejoice. Now, obviously we are not here structural engineers, or architects in the ancient world. But there is actually a difference between the cornerstone and the capstone, okay? So um, it's very important for us as we read the Bible to be aware of the difference. The cornerstone is what you put at the beginning of the construction. So, you know, you put the cornerstone in the, in the corner here and you begin by building the wall around that strongest stone. The capstone is the last stone that you put usually at like on the ceiling or the roof, to hold everything together. And so God promises in this passage that through him providing the energy from the outside, him providing the oil from the outside, Zerubbabel will finish the job of the temple and he will put the capstone to the final work of the temple and people will rejoice and they will bless God. And God is faithful to his promises because we know that five years after uh, this, the preaching of the sermon by Zechariah and then Haggai, the temple actually was completed. And so God really achieved what he promised his people that he would do. And the capstone was set on the temple and people did praise God for his effort of helping them, build the temple. Now, as we look at this passage, again, it's not just for the people of 520 BC, because just as God, in a sense, adds the oil, His presence, His spirit, and His word, so in the same way, God is building the kingdom of God today among us, the church of Christ. In Mark chapter 4, I want you to look at this passage and pay attention so how the kingdom of God grows without human effort in these passages. right? Look very carefully. Look at what it says. Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. See, notice that. The kingdom of God just keeps growing And growing, whether the guy is sleeping or getting up, and he doesn't even know how, it's because God is empowering the work from the outside. It's not by might or power. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stock, then the head, and then the full kernel of the head. It's like the whole process comes about invisibly. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come again another parable jesus tells what shall we say the kingdom of god is like or what sh- what parable shall we use to describe it it is like a mustard seed which is the smallest seed in the ground yet when planted it grows to become the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air sit or perch in its shade and so here we see that god does his work of building his kingdom from the outside, he sovereignly, actively builds it without human effort. And it, it reaches its, its final, uh, I guess, fullness because God wills it to be. And it's so nice and full right? that even the small mustard seed will become, from the small beginning, the largest of all the garden plants so that the birds, I guess, in a way, representing people like ourselves, can find shelter in it. And this ties very much with what we've read in Zechariah. It is not by human might. It is not by human power, but by God's Spirit. The kingdom of God is built and reaches its full size to give shelter to all who come to it. So in conclusion, uh, i like to reflect once again on the illustration, the true illustration that I gave right at the beginning, about how, you know, I still remember when we went to the, you know, you imagine we are all packed into this very old Peugeot, and then, you know, the car's hardly ever running properly, and then you lock your car keys, and you're stuck in the snow, and you just got all your ski equipment, and the keys are stuck in the car, getting cold, and there's no way to get back, And you really need somebody to come and help you, right? Okay? And so somebody does finally come and help you and, you know, what a wonderfully good thing it is. But but that's a really relatively a minor problem compared to the big, big, big problem that we have of our sin, right? Of our relationship with God and our place in the world with God. But God is so good, out of his grace, he acts out of his free will, outside of the situation, to come into our situation, to, to silence our accuser of our sin, to snatch us from the flame of judgment, to give us white clothes and to take away our really smelly, pool-filled clothes of sin. And he continues to build his kingdom even today without our help. And this kingdom will be accomplished and it will be the greatest of all kingdoms and we find our shelter there. How good is God? I mean, he's done everything, right? Like someone was saying, it's like, you know, you do this group project at a university or school or ITA or poly, but he does all the work and we're just along for the ride. And that's what God is like. You know, God has done everything. God supplies everything. and He is such a good God. And I hope that these pictures or these visions will be an encouragement for you of thankfulness, of joy and rejoicing because this is the God who is our God. He has saved us, rescued us, and he's put us in his kingdom and his kingdom will reach his final fulfillment and we will find our safety and security Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for you are such a good, good, good God. We find ourselves in a hopeless, helpless situation. We are unable to save ourselves from the offensive, repulsive sin that we we symbolically wear in our clothes. Dear Father, we, again, through our human might and power, are unable to build your kingdom on the earth. So we thank you, dear Father, for you have acted unilaterally. You have acted out of grace. You have acted uh, not because we deserve it in any way. To silence our accuser, Satan, even though we are deserving of judgment. You have snatched us from the flames of judgment. You have given us these fresh, clean, white, pure linen clothes to replace the offensive, repulsive clothes of sin that we wear. And you've brought us into your kingdom, and this kingdom will become a mighty, powerful uh, tree which we can find shelter in. So we pray and give thanks to you for all these things and pray that these pictures and visions may stick in our minds as an encouragement to our faith. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.